listening to the Companion Gundog Podcast. I'm your host, Grayson Geyer, and with me today is a very special get- guest. It's, uh, it's a bit of a treat to me. This is Jerry Bradshaw. If you've listened to the podcast at all, um, you've heard me reference uh, plenty of his material. So, uh, Jerry, thanks for coming on and welcome. Thanks for having me on, Grayson. It's uh, great to be here with you. Uh, well, I, you know, I, I'm going to jump right in and, uh, and just go ahead and give you an introduction. This is Jerry Bradshaw and here's what I have. And Jerry, I'm going to ask you to kind of expand on this if you, if you want to at the end, but, um, Jerry is, uh, the owner and operator of Tar Heel Canine in Sanford, North Carolina. He is the founder and executive director of Protection Sports Association. Uh, he's also a national champion of that organization. Long time, or, or at least back in the day, Schutzen competitor. Um, and uh, at Tar Heel Canine, uh, you guys, I guess, focus on police and military. You have a pet training section and a school for dog trainers. Um, is, how's that sound so far? Am I getting that yeah, right? Yeah, I mean, you're, uh, you're hitting the nail on the head. That's pretty much what we do. <laughs> right on. So I, you know, I guess we'll jump, I'd like start with PSA. It's something, um, I was involved in, I guess, you know, and, and, and I'm not, I'm not completely saying that I won't be involved in the future. Um, but it was an early part of my kind of, uh, formative years as a dog trainer and, you know, when, when exactly did you start that? Early 2000s, around 2001, uh, officially is uh, kind of when we, when we kicked it off. But as you know, cause you were, you were around there probably in the, in the early years as well that, uh, you know, we had started Joe Morris and I had started just doing some tournaments, um, where we were doing sort of surprise scenario work and, uh, you know, got us, uh, kind of got us interested. He, he was the sort of the, the one who kind of pushed a little bit to, um, get us interested here at Tar Heel about surprise scenario type uh, competitions. And uh, we played around with it with our two clubs for a little while. And, um, you know, it was one of those things where we started putting on these little tournaments and people started coming out of the woodwork to, to watch them. And they're like, hey, how do we get involved? And at the time we were doing it, I had uh, just uh, kind of left my um, uh, the Schutzen um, group that I was working with, and was a little bit tired of some of the the politics of that big organization and so forth. And you know, I was just like content to train my dogs, and we would have these little competitions with trophies and stuff. And you know, judge uh, we would you know bring in some judges. Sometimes we would judge, you know, our uh, our club members and and so forth. And it was kind of it was a lot of fun because we were just trying to outdo each other with some of the crazy scenarios that we, we could come up with and, you know, just sort of see what we could do. We did some really dangerous shit at times. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was, I, I remember those days well, man. And, and, uh, for, you know, and I was kind of watching from afar, I was in the service and I, mm-hmm. uh, I was keeping up in the earliest days of the internet and it was definitely the wild, wild west. As far as like protection tournaments back in those days, there were a couple of, organizations that were uh that were kind of jockeying for for that spot to be the next big thing and yeah I think <laughs> it was it was wild but yeah you know, i'm you know i i i would love to hear by the way a podcast that that is solely focused on the history of psa because i think it's fascinating 
Yeah, there's when you get some of the old timers together, you know, a dinner after a trial and get a few drinks and all of us, it's uh it's kind of fun to hear some of the old stories. It's I've been doing it so long, Grace, and you know that like sometimes somebody will talk about this big thing that happened. I'll be like, Dude, I haven't thought about that in 20 years. And you know, it's it's fun to 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 kind of like be nostalgic about uh how we got that started. We had a lot of people say it was gonna go nowhere and you know, I always tell people like 20, you know, like PSA has been a, uh, you know, 20 year overnight success. Um, <laughs> you know, there, there are some grinding years. There were some slow years, uh, difficult years. And, uh, you know, it's just really probably in the, in the past, uh, you know, six or seven years just really started to take off and popularity. And, you know, I feel like we have a great demographic. We've got lots of young trainers, that are really interested in it and you know the you know the quality of the training has gone up so much and the quality of the uh you know the dogs and so forth so it's really exciting time to be involved in in the sport for me um having you know been there in the beginning i, I was telling somebody today they were asking me about you know the dogs that i titled early on and you know and then uh raptor my my most recent dog we won two back-to-back -back national championships in uh, 2019 and 2020. And uh, they were just asking about what it was like in the beginning compared to, to now. And, you know, I said, it's like when you watch the old baseball reels, like with Babe Ruth on it. And, you know, and they talk about baseball being like, you know, the Babe Ruth era and then you got the modern era, right? And, and PSA is kind of the same way. Like there was, there was some craziness in the in the early days and it, it was actually fairly hard in the early days in some respects even though it wasn't quite as technical especially in the obedience and so forth that it is now and you know with some of the rule changes but you know back then you had to get a psa3 you had to get 80 percent in obedience to pass and you had to get 80 percent all your surprise scenarios to pass and now it's 75 and not to say that it's you know materially easier in 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 every respect it's not because the technicality of what's demanded is is a lot higher uh i think now than it was back then but uh it's kind of you know it was kind of a a real um kind of dream of mine after i kind of took a big break just competing generally after the you know uh, retired rocky and, and ricardo uh, back in the early 2000s and um you know then to to come back in 2000 you know like in the in the later 2000s and and put it into a new dog and you know and get to the top level was was exciting for me because then yeah i was able to show myself that i still kind of was able to do the stuff that i did back then now and uh, and i continue to try and try and do that and try and evolve and try and learn and i think the sport really pushes people to to do that um otherwise you'll be kind of left behind in the dust well, it's, you know, I, it, I'm, it, I'm, I'm so tempted to just, to just make this a complete like nostalgia conversation. <laughs> um, because I, you know, I just recently did a, uh, one of these podcasts and, and it was, uh, titled the dogs that left a mark on me and Ricardo mm -hmm. made the list, you know, and I can vividly remember. And I, he left, he left I, marks I, on a lot of people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he did, man. And I, you know, it's funny. I only took a few bites from Ricardo, but they were just early enough in my career that it was like, oh, there's levels to this shit, you know, like, <laughs> and, uh, um, you know, so uh, you know, I, I'm going to save some time for some of this towards the end, but I, okay. I, there's so many technical things I want to talk to you about and that 
I think are important for us to get out of the way. But I do want, before we get into that, if you wouldn't mind describing a little bit about what, what you do at Tar Heel, kind of what your business is focused towards, I think it'll help the folks get a little bit of a, a, an idea of your background and maybe your expertise and how it's pertinent to them. Sure. Um, a lot of what we do, um, obviously, we're, we're geared towards selling police dogs. So um, a proportion of those dogs that we import and, and resell are to departments that do their own training. And then uh, another a big chunk of dogs that we import are dogs that we actually train for agencies and we train them all the way, you know, for, for whatever they're, they're wanting, you know, the majority of the market is geared toward uh, narcotics dogs, um, and, uh, uh, dual purpose narcotics dogs. So, you know, doing patrol functions, apprehension, criminal apprehension, uh, suspect location, tracking, uh, and, uh, you know, and, and the, you know, the, the detection uh, specialty that they might have, whether it's narcotics or explosives. And then, um, you know, the, uh, the other things that we do just, you know, single purpose narcotics dogs, single purpose bomb dogs. Um, and then, uh, you know, we get some just patrol only dogs for the West coast. Um, they have, they have a lot of just patrol dogs that are demanded out there and we'll train them all the way through a handler course. We'll provide a handler course for the handlers to come through once the dogs are trained. And, uh, but some of the departments will actually pick up the trained dogs and they run their own courses with the dogs. That's kind of a new thing that we've been doing a lot lately. Um, especially for departments on the West coast where they want to get the dogs in and minimize the amount of time that they have to be in school. So buying the the trained dogs and then running their own handler courses is something that seems to be very popular in a lot of uh, areas around the country, especially that have, you know, good, competent trainers and they want to make use of them. So those, uh, that's kind of, that's kind of the, the, the bulk of what we do, but then adjacent to that, we have our school for dog trainers. So, um, you know, it's, uh, relative to some of the other schools for dog trainers out there. It's a bit of a smaller program, uh, because the people that are coming are really getting deep into working dogs. And, you know, we, they go out with the groups of, uh, of trainers, uh, and load up vans and trailers and head out and track and do article searches and, you know, teach the dogs all their p- patrol functions, uh, detection functions, and all that kind of stuff under the supervision of our trainers. And, um, you know, I kind of float around and work with all of the groups a little bit, trouble, do some troubleshooting, things like that. And, um, you know, the, 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 the bulk of our days with the students is just, uh, you know, showing them what to do, how to do it, shepherding them through the process of how to train a police dog from start to finish. A lot of the students that come, you know, obviously want to get into some kind of sport work and sometimes they have their own dogs. And so that'll be another focus of working with the students on, you know, just competition work, competition, uh, um, you know, bite work, obedience, that sort of thing. And then, um, you know, we do have a pet program. It's really a solid pet program. It's uh, run by um, Derek Beckelman and his wife, and they are um, a super duo, and they do a great job, um, you know, working with the dogs that are coming in for training and the students, and the students absolutely love Derek. He's a great teacher, great explaining things, and really, uh, you know, is able to break things down, um, you know, for for people on the pet side. And then we have, you know, folks that are sort of bouncing back and forth a little bit from uh, pets to, um, you know, over to uh, the working dog side and getting a little bit of both. So, um, but, you know, a big focus for us is turning out really competent students that are capable of getting jobs as trainers. And uh, we have a super good track record of putting out uh, trainers that actually have the hands-on experience to be successful as entry-level trainers for a lot of businesses and 
um, uh, they you know, we they get jobs with uh, government, with uh, you know, with all kinds of uh, um, you know NGOs and things like that, you know, all over the place. So we're really proud of the students that we put out and the quality of the students that we put out. It's not just a money making operation, although we do try and make some money at it. Um, you know, it's really important for me to put out super high level competent people that are really good at what they do, um, and that's that's something that really makes it good for me because you know my you know, one of the joys for me is passing this stuff along to other people, um, giving out information, you know, so people can use it and be successful in their own rights. Yeah. It's, you know, I can attest to, uh, I can certainly attest to at least the, the, I guess the, the amount of hands-on experience your students get. And I've, you know me, man. I've always kind of sat back and tried to rip off as much for free as I possibly could, uh, everywhere I possibly can. And I, you know, so I would always show up to club days and just hope that maybe if I got in the suit a little bit, nobody would notice that I was, uh, you know, just on the outskirts. But your students are always, you know, just I can remember just shuttling dogs, handling dogs, always mm-hmm. had dogs, always on club days, busy. And, uh, and getting, you know, more real world experience than I think you would ever get. And I've, um, I I've kind of secretly been crossing my fingers that maybe one day you'll get somebody that just has a, you know, an, a deep interest in gun dogs and, um, I'll, I'll get me a, a Tar Heel grad at some point <laughs> to come in here and uh, make my life easier. But yeah. I, I, you know, I certainly would, I think, if I were, if I were running an, you know, at least a kind of a bigger pet operation or, uh, or a vendor, you know, kennel of some sort, um, you would, your Tar Heel would certainly be the first place I would look to, oh, to make a hire. Super you nice of I mean? you to say, I appreciate that. Well, it's, it's true. And it's easy to tell the truth and, you know, and, um, yeah, well, I, I guess how many, how many dogs are you guys putting on the streets these days? Uh, to, in, like in a in a typical year, we import somewhere around um, 130 to 140 dogs a year. I would say probably about you know f- probably 50 50. Half of them kind of go out as green dogs. The other half go out as trained dogs. And well, so I guess the the whole point is what's always been impressive is like your ability. Number one, you're an extremely high level trainer, and 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 I'm and I'm not blowing smoke when I say you're a thought leader um, in the field, but what's really impressive is your business acumen. And, and you you know, I love the fact that you're unapologetic about it to some degree. Uh, and it's tough, you know, as somebody that's, that has managed to make a living in this business, um, I cannot imagine, I can't imagine trying to manage all the moving pieces you do on a daily basis. And, um, I can't imagine what that's like, you know, so <laughs> kudos man there are better, there are good days and 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 some worse days for that for sure well it's 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 impressive and and thank you so much for being here and i you know i'm i'm proud to be somewhat affiliated with you to whatever degree that i am Absolutely. and I, for for those again that have listened to this podcast they've heard me reference you over and over and over again and today um you know there's one particular article that i always come back to and it it seems to be kind of an anchor uh, and, and that, um, the, the idea behind the article is an anchor in, in most things I do. And I think in working dogs, dogs, it's very important, but also it spills into gun dogs in a very big way. And that's drive management. 
Mm-hmm. And so if we can tackle that topic a little bit today, sure. I think that would be uh, a big benefit to to folks that at least it would kind of explain, I, th- I think listening to this conversation is going to help folks understand where I come from and why it's so important to me um, to, to talk about my background in protection sports and why I feel like it uh, gives me a perspective that's somewhat advantageous to my work as a gun dog trainer. Um, and so I'm going to try my best to keep this kind of focused. I'm not a great interviewer. If you can't tell, this is not, I, I also ripped off your podcast in term in like the monologue deal, because it's much easier for me to just <laughs> manage myself than try to keep a conversation going. But either way, um, you know, if, if we can just like maybe, and I, and I, I'm, I hate to put the pressure on you, but I want to hear your explanation. If we can just talk about drives for a second, and I've done plenty of this, um, maybe discuss, just describe and maybe define to some extent canine drives and uh, their pertinence to working dogs. Sure. Well, like like a lot of things in dog training, I feel like, um, you, know, you know, we we construct for ourselves and for our understanding, you know, what we would consider to be a model, right? So coming from my background and, uh, you know, as an economist before I got into dog training, you know, you have this very complex system like the economy and you, um, you know, you have to kind of break it down so it's uh, understandable. And really how you judge a model is by its predictive power. Like if, you know, if you say, well, this is this is our model and and here's a, you know, here's the model of the labor market and we have the supply of labor and the demand for labor. And, you know, where those two curves intersect, we have a equilibrium wage and, you know, an amount of people that are employed. And then, you know, we kind of understand what things move those curves to make the wages go down or make the wages go up or, you know, so forth and so on. You know, we get some explanation of the behavior of, you know, certain important key, um, you know, variables uh, we need to understand uh, for for the greater good. We do the same thing in dog training. You know, we have in our minds um, a model. And so for me, you know, the drive theory of of dog training is is a model to me where it's a way for us to explain, understand, and predict, right? Um, you know, sort of a dog behavior under certain circumstances, under certain conditions, right? So for me, you know, um, managing drives or we're thinking about drives, obviously the drives that we're interested in, you know, are, you know, primarily in, in bite work, we're talking about prey drive, you know, the instinct to chase, catch and kill things and defense drive, the instinct to self-protection and protection of, um, you know, the dogs uh, perceived uh, things that they own, right? Uh, you know, if it would be a protection work, it might be their sleeve or the wedge or, you know, whatever it is we're working with the dog uh, on for biting. And, uh, once they, uh, win it and, you know, they want to possess it and they don't want to let it go. So they might show some aggression to keep you away from, from stealing it away from them. And so, you know, both of those drives for us and protection work along with, um, you know, some kind of social drive in terms of, you know, that explains how the dog interacts with strangers and how the dog might interact with, um, you know, with, uh, handler. And, um, you know, take all those things together and you can start maybe predicting a little bit about, you know, how a dog would behave in certain circumstances. And, you know, for me, a lot of a lot of my um, early years were spent trying to understand that stuff as I'm out there watching, 
dog training. And of course I didn't invent, uh, you know, um, the drive model. I didn't invent a lot of the, the terminology that comes around it, but I have been a keeper of the flame, uh, in terms of, um, you know, talking about, you know, just working, you know, working particularly in one drive when you're doing protection work, like prey drive only is not sufficient. Um, you know, working in it with a balance of drives, prey and defense, um, understanding how to get the most out of a dog based on what their, you know, what their drives are like in terms of, is this dog, you know, say prey heavy or defense heavy when we, when we take a look at the dog and, um, you know, how are they going to deal with pressure and, and so forth when, uh, when that comes and what drives get activated by, you know, by what things in their environment and, you know, and in, in their, you know, likely in a deployment, what things are going to activate that dog's drives when maybe, you know, we least expect it, right? Like I always tell people that um, obviously the triggers for prey drive or, or movement um, of uh, what the dog perceives as prey and then for defense, it's what the dog perceives as a threat is going to trigger uh, the defense drive. And sometimes, you know, based on the dog, we don't know exactly what the dog is going to find threatening, what combination of things, you know, uh, could be, you know, um, territorial encroachment, layer that with some uh, environmental stressors like, you know, slippery floors in a dark room and, you know, that kind of stuff. And the dog being independent, maybe back tied with no handler present. And you might create the conditions where otherwise what appears to be a really strong dog in my work might fold up and per they perceive defense and they don't really understand a way out of it. They don't know what to do with all that pressure. So one of the things I've talked about for many, many years and I emphasize in our training and in our club and uh, I feel like that it's been fairly successful because uh, the predictive power of, of this model and our use of it is that we're able to produce strong police dogs that, uh, you know, they're capable of doing uh, apprehension work, um, not getting overloaded by stress, um, and being able to return to a baseline of normalcy after encounters and so forth and so on. And also, um, you know, create a lot of sport dogs that have gone on to sort of massive accomplishments. And, you know, that, that doesn't obviate the need for having a, um, you know, a really strong, genetic um you know predisposition to prey to defense to good solid nerves and so forth we need all of those things right um but a lot of what the drive model talks about is drive interactions right um you know pressuring a dog in defense and then channeling it into prey so it learns to uh you know to become you know more facile with with uh, being able to work in those uh, in those other drives and then being able to return to a position of power uh, a lot of I, I i can't tell you how many times in you know i have people come for private lessons and they want to work their dogs and i evaluate the dogs and yeah i get told a story of like well the helper at my club used a lot of defense and didn't really understand channeling into prey and didn't really understand you know how to relieve stress and that's really what it's what it's all about. You can bring massive amounts of pressure on a dog if the dog knows there's a venue, a way out of the pressure, sure. and and that's what becomes uh, for me uh, really important in the training process. So, you know, for for me in my daily work, where you know we have to be able to, you know, manage these drives, work with these drives, um, 
bring a drive into a high state of arousal and then um, you know, we use the term drive capping where we can give an obedience command and the dog can come out of that state of arousal, give us an obedience behavior like a down, for example, be able to like a boiling pot, you know, that's got steam coming out of it. All of a sudden you put the cover on it and, you know, and everything gets clamped down. The dog shows the obedience behavior that we want, gives us the stillness that we want, the quiet that we want. We don't get, you know, leaking. Right. And we talk about drive leaking all the time. We don't get the leaking where some of the steam is coming out. Right. Um, and then on command, we can then release all that power that's being pent up inside the animal. And that's like the power of, of drive capping. We use it a lot in police dogs where, you know, we're going to at first teach this dog to get really, you know, wound up, fired up, barking to do his building search or an area search. And we'll let the dog get very expressive. And then we send him in to do that stuff. He gets to bite, he gets to apprehend, um, you know, somebody. And, uh, and so through classical conditioning, he learns, wow, this is the funnest thing I've ever done in my life. I love it. Every time I come in to do it, I'm going to be more excited than the time before. And, you know, in a short amount of time, you create this very expressive dog um, who's, you know, really ready to go and, and do his work. And then, you know, that comes in conflict with, okay, well, we've got to be able to take this dog tactically into a building. We don't want that dog barking because we want to be able to hear our uh, conversations with our backup guys. We want, don't want to give our position away. So, you know, we bring the dog in and then, you know, maybe we heal him in and um, kind of cap him a little bit in the healing behavior and then bring him up and put him in a down before we send him into the building while the announcements are going on. We position the dog where we want. He's got to be quiet. He's got to be calm, but I don't want him to be suppressed. I want him to be ready to explode with energy as soon as we give him that command. And, you know, and, and so that's a big part of it. And then the other thing that we, um, you know, we have to manage in terms of drives is we have to manage for the short term with drive capping and then for the long term, uh, creating a certain amount of neutrality. You know, if you have a really sharp police dog who comes out and he's just looking at everybody as targets, you know, we have to teach him that, hey, the guys that are, you know, dressed like your handler and um, next to you and behind you and to a certain extent, a little bit in front of you in certain positions, they're friendlies and, you know, and, and we want to create some neutrality to them. So the dog is not looking to just bite whatever it looks at um, and whoever might be near him. And so we have to create a certain level of neutrality and neutrality basically means uh, we have to take the dog's arousal level down a couple of notches. We don't want to suppress the dog again and create a dog that can't function where he's in the wrong frame of mind to then be released into uh, his building search or, or whatever it is we're going to do with him. Um, but we have to be able to bring that arousal level down around the things that normally would put him out of, uh, you know, out in the, uh, in the stratosphere in terms of arousal. And so, you know, managing that, teaching the dog to be able to be under control and to be in a state of mind where he can think and process commands and do things for us, um, move around, um, you know, for example, just being able to 
um, cap the dog at the start of a building search and then release him to search and then down him while he's in the midst of searching, you know, another drive capping exercise. But then as the backup people move up on the dog, after we take chunks of territory, we clear a building and then we move our backups into a new position and then clear forward again. We have to have that neutrality around the backup guys. And the fact that the dog has done some searching and not found anybody yet, that may happen a bunch of times. We don't want that dog becoming so uh, frustrated and over aroused that, you know, this time when somebody comes and steps past the dog to take their cover position, the dog decides to just cheat and, uh, you know, take a whack at, you know, whack at their calf or something like that as they're going by. Um, you know, so that's, you know, that's kind of our every day. A lot of the things that we do are, are uh, a lot of our control commands um, are going to be based on uh, both capping and drive neutrality. We do, um, you know, what we call uh, stopped attacks or down in routes where you may send the dog to make an apprehension and then you down the dog and route to the decoy um, because maybe the guy gives up or, you know, we um, a backup guy got in between the, the bad guy and, and, the, and the canine and we have to, for safety reasons, we have to break off the, uh, the apprehension. And so being able to take a dog that's in full-blown, hot prey drive, ready to run down his, uh, uh, his adversary, and then uh, be able to give him a command and have that dog just, you know, slide in the dirt, you know, like a uh, clay court tennis player and hold his ground and be able to manage his drives where he's like, okay, I was ready to go explode on this dude, but my handler told me now I got it down. So he's ready to, to go again. If something happens that we have to, you know, make him recommit, but also he's in a frame of mind where he can think he can process the handler at that point may want him to stay and hold that ground. as we move up to make an uh, apprehension, make an arrest, or, you know, we might want to recall him back to our cover position for whatever reason, the, the tactics dictate. So um, a lot of it is about, you know, thinking clearly and getting through the fog of the arousal and you know all all of the things that we do in the beginning to make this dog just really want to go out there and do his job uh whether you know it's uh it's an apprehension uh of uh, uh of somebody in police work or um you know it's uh, to go out and retrieve a bird uh we've got to have those things under command control and they've got to be the dog has to be in a frame of mind where it can think clearly about those things and so that takes some work Wow. Yeah. I mean, yeah, that's, it's, it's, so I hope everybody listening is catching the parallels and, and this is it. There's, you know, I've, I've listened to you for many years d describe dog training in, in a similar fashion to you, just to the way you just described it there in, in terms of, uh, what we do in, whether it be protection, even detection, um, you know, or, or, or whatever the context may be. Uh, and, and I would be remiss if I, and I did miss it, a bullet point where I wanted to discuss your background just a bit in your education, uh, as an economist. And I've been bastardizing this quote that I think you made like <laughs> 10 years ago, uh, <laughs> about dogs being like the perfect economist and, and always working in their own self-interest and right. maybe hit that real quick. And I want to, I want to move on to drive because that there's, you said so much right there that's so pertinent to to the things that I'm always frustrated trying to articulate to, to folks I'm speaking to. Well, yeah, I, I started out, uh, um, in, uh, in 
undergrad, I started out as an engineer that didn't work out. So I went over to the uh, economics department and kind of found my home there academically and uh, got a uh, uh, master's degree, got a bachelor's degree in uh, bachelor's uh, of arts and economics, and then a master of science in applied economics from Virginia Tech. Both those uh, degrees were from Virginia Tech. And then I went to uh, I w- went to um, UNC Chapel Hill, which is what brought me to North Carolina and completed most of my PhD program. I stopped at my uh, when I finished my uh, or got to my proposal defense and because uh, I had started getting into dogs at that time. And I remember just feeling the conflict of needing to like finish writing my dissertation. But I was finding myself at the soccer fields in Chapel Hill, just tracking my dog. I had this I had gotten a puppy and I was just so impatient. I started with my Schutzen club and he was coming along great, but I really wanted to like do more. And so I, I imported this older dog from the, from the guy who sold me the puppy. Uh, and this older dog was just a basket of problems. His name is Ben and he's actually the dog that's on the Tar Heel logo. And, um, he taught, he taught me so much because he just refused to track. And I, I tried as many things as I could, I could do to get him, uh, get him to understand tracking. So I was just out there every day we were tracking, he was tracking for his meals and, um, we were working on problems and trying to figure things out together. And I just found myself just falling in love with doing it. And then I took on extra responsibilities, which were probably not smart, which was like doing assistant. Um, I was an assistant trainer at the, um, obedience uh, school in Chapel Hill that was run by the Animal Protection Society. So I was like helping people with their new puppies and things like that. So, uh, you know, uh, here I am like trying, you know, supposed to be like being a serious academic and, you know, I'm spending more of my time with dogs and finding that I'm actually more at peace and enjoying it. So um, I finally made the decided to make the move and uh, and started my own business and uh got out of dog training or excuse me got out of uh, the academic world and uh you know ended up in sanford and started the business and kind of like uh never never looked back i still i still had to teach some classes in the beginning you know at uh, some other universities because i wasn't making any money (laughs) quite yet um and i was finding it was kind of hard to break into the business but you know, when your livelihood depends on doing something, you can sometimes be pretty resourceful about it. So I always, I always really felt that dogs were great economists, like you said, because they were always working in their self-interest and, um, humans, sometimes we look at that, we're like, oh, they seem to be quite altruistic and they love to do things for us and they like to make us feel good and stuff like that. And I always look at them as, you know, like Adam Smith's perfect, uh, animal, um, because they are operating in their self-interest. They, they, you know, they always are looking to find their advantages and things. And if we understand dogs as opportunity, opportunistic predators that they are and don't anthropomorphize them too much, and you can uh, really come up with uh, a lot of ways to, you know, make them, uh, you know, make them and have them do the things that they want to do if they think it's in their own self-interest. <laughs> well, it's, you know, it's interesting because, and this is probably going to hurt some feelings, but you know, every time I hear somebody tell me that their dog works solely for praise, I hear your voice giving that quote in the back of my mind, right. you know, and it's, and it's like, and, the, and if, if they're not wrong right. to some degree, right? I don't want to take their, like the wind out of their sails completely, but there's, 
there's so much more at play. There's, you know, there's this, uh, you know, this complex system of, you know, the, like you said, the kind of social drives that I find are always so hard to put a finger on. Mm-hmm. And it's so clean when we think of working in food and, and with spe- especially in prey is, is also has its own kind of hierarchy of complexity of, of what's clean and what's not. Um, and then, uh, you know, and that's just one side of the equation and thinking of working and motivation and, um, but there's, there's obviously a, a social component. Um, but I always tend to neglect it to some degree on the training field because I'm, <laughs> I'm looking for what the primary reinforcer is. You right. Know? And, right. Well, I, you know, and I, I did a podcast on that not too long ago where I talked about, you know, is your training too operant and, you know, and I think a lot of trainers get lost in, um, reward systems and, and only thinking, you know, those four quadrants and applying them and forgetting about the, um, you know, the, the classical conditioning piece of training, which oftentimes has more to do with just how does the dog feel about whatever it is that you're doing at the moment. Um, and, uh, and kind of emphasizing that. And I think, you know, like, um, for me, at least as I've gotten older, and more experienced as a trainer, I think a lot more about that. I think a lot more about how to inject emotion into what's happening with my dog or sometimes subtract a little bit of emotion. Like right now I have a dog that I'm working that uh, when I use negative punishment with him, like when I started working on like duration and healing, uh, I mean, I was, he was on a food reward system for the most part. And I wasn't, I, he was very, very responsive to it. But the longer I would withhold the food during the healing um, you know, just trying to put some distance between reward events with the, with the food, he, he, he would be out there. And especially if there was like a, a decoy in the chair, when we were doing it, he would, his teeth would start to show a little bit more and a little bit more like the longer I would walk. And I would, I would find myself, I got to a point where I pushed it a little too far and then he just he bit the shit out of me. <laughs> um, and I, I, yeah, I wasn't punishing. It was nothing. I was just, sure. You know, his emotions were like just getting out of hand, the anticipation of the reward coming and it being withheld and the frustration he was experiencing in his little stupid Malinois brain. And <laughs> and then I found, I found myself like regulating myself, like not going too far because I like he had, you know, he had already made me think too much about okay at what point is this going to turn from just showing a bunch of teeth at me while we're healing to where he's just going to like out of nowhere kind of tag me (laughs) and so i i would always reward a bit faster you know it's like like the you know the dog that growls at you when you stop petting him you know i I can i'm picturing drago uh in my mind right now um i don't know why i just but i always love that you always there's something you know i hear you describe that and i know that cognitively you understand it, but I know also in my mind that you like kind of love it a little bit. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, it's, it, it, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And I, I do, I, I got it. So I got to keep us on track a little bit. I want to go back cause we, we, you did a wonderful job and you really kind of went straight down the line of all the things I wanted to talk about in, in drive management and drive manipulation. Um, you know, when we started, you, you talked about capping and you talked about neutrality and you touched on suppression a little bit. Um, I want to, you know, so, you know, one thing, again, another thing I've ripped off from you and, and, uh, folks have heard me say it on this podcast. When I have a young dog, um, I want it to be, uh, uh just a, 
just an outlet of expression. Mm. Uh, and, and so you always talked about making monsters with, mm-hmm. so we, when we're building our young dogs, I, you know, um, even if we know we have a high drive dog, and this is something I find in gun dogs very often that, you know, people start with a, with a nice high drive young dog and immediately need to move into capping suppression and neutrality to some degree. And, and maybe there's room for that to, depending on how we're approaching it. Um, but, I, but I'm also, I want to see what the dog has to offer in mm-hmm. terms of expression before I start down that road. And, and, and I, I feel like I learned a lot of that from you as well. Uh, and, and so what, what kind of importance do you place on that with your, with your young dogs, your puppies, your, you know, whatever it is yeah. you're, you're kind of getting a handle on. Well, I, you know, my, my feeling about that is I see a lot of puppies come through our club, for example. And I've, um, even though I'm not a big puppy guy myself, I have, I have raised a, a couple of super young dogs and, and some puppies in, in, in for my own uh, purposes as a handler. But, uh, the dog I have now, Taylor and I raised together. He's mostly a, our house dog until a retired Raptor. And then I kind of got bored and I was like, oh, I want to kind of do something with him, but I wasn't ready to commit to, you know, getting a new prospect just yet. And, uh, and so, you know, we, we did everything with him was drive expression, hunting, making him crazy. You know, he's a lunatic for a ball. And for me to say he's a lunatic for a ball really means <laughs> he's a lunatic for a ball. I get it. Um, you know, and, uh, like some people think they are seeing high drive and I've had the opportunity to travel throughout Europe and and been in this business for 30 years and kind of have a grasp on, you know, what's a little bit on the uh, scale of insane. And, you know, so he got, he got lots of uh, independence work. Um, Taylor taught him to do hard service tracking. He's a really great hard service tracker. Um, And, you know, like he was like three and some change and she's like, uh, you got to put some obedience on the stock. <laughs> he like, had none. He like walked around on a flexi all the time. And, you know, all he did was like hunting work. Right. So um, we did, and we did bite work with him when he was young. I did all, I did a lot of his bite, some of his bite work foundation and, you know, we got him on a suit. We did some police dog stuff with him, you know, so he could, uh, you know, demo some things for, for students and stuff at, at Tar Heel. And, um, you know, then I started to get serious about, uh, serious about working him. But, um, you know, for me, like with the puppies, I love them to be crazy. I just want them to come out and be super expressive. And, you know, I, you know, there's, there's lots of different schools of thought about that stuff where, you know, you might see some people and they're like, look, my, you know, my dog is eight months old and he has a clean out. And I'm like, it always makes me sad. You know what I mean? I'm like, like, oh, the poor guy, like, like, Let him be a little crazy, you know, like there's always time to put some control on. And well, that's, I, I, I feel, you know, and I'm sorry, I don't mean to cut you off, but it's like, this is such an enormous, like, this is a, a I guess a, a, a sticking point or a point of contention for me. And I think much of my little subsect of the industry is like, it's, I'm not afraid and I don't, and I'm, I don't want to just, I'm not just wanting to toot my own horn, but I'm not afraid of this expressive young dog. Mm-hmm. You know, and I had, I actually had a lab today, uh, find a dove that was probably crippled during our dove shoot a couple of days ago. And, uh, he ran over there and I had him off leash, of course, like just walking around the yard and he just starts gobbling the thing down. And I, and for, for a second, I, you know, the, my first inclination was to be like, no, I'm coming to chase you. Right. And I just watched him and I was like, you know what? Ingest it, dude. We'll, we'll deal with it later. <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> um, 
And and so I, you know, I this is this is stuff I want people that listen to this podcast to hear is like I think and and obviously you have to gain a sort of confidence to know that you can you can deal with the maybe and I don't want to consider them problems, but the monster you're making, you know, yeah. it's I, you I, can it's looking to the future to know that you have the confidence to 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 temper that. Absolutely. And I, I think, you know, there are, are times too where you see that young dog maybe at eight, nine, ten months old, and you're like, Well, if we don't get ahead of this, you know, um with with some control, then we might lose this dog forever. And we've you know, that that's happened to me before, right? Sure. Where where you're like, ah, oh, you know, we, we still have time, we still have time, we still have time, we put it off too long, and it's like, oh boy, well, you know, <laughs> we, we I miscalculated that one. You know? <laughs> It happens occasionally with some of our police dogs because, like, you know, we're getting these young, young, young police dogs, right? Sure. The 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 demand is so high worldwide. So, you know, you've got 10, 11, 12-month-old dogs that are super precocious, drivey, but just not mature. And so my inclination is to build, build, build. I'm going to leave the control work to later. And occasionally you get one that kind of his balls drop and, you know, the maturity has like a fast onset and you're like, wow, where'd the puppy go? Um, now we're really going to struggle with some control work with this guy because, you know, we let it go on a little bit too far. We made him a little too confident um, and uh, and a little hard. And and so now we're going to struggle with that. So I, I think you're right. I think you got to you have to also know which are the ones that you got to get in, um, you know, get get to a lot sooner and which are the ones, you know, you got time for. Right. And 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 we do that a lot of times with our outs. And stuff like that where we'll take you know we'll keep building the dog and then we'll have a day where we're like let's take a peek and see what the out process is going to look like with this guy like you know will he sleeve trade will he you know um you know if we put a little pressure into him how's he going to handle that and you know sometimes we'll like wager ahead of time what do you think is this guy guy going to be an easy out is it going to be difficult you know and sometimes you're right sometimes you're wrong and sometimes you're like okay well maybe this one we want to get to a little faster and this other one, you know, we're going to give a little more time to, to bake. And, um, yeah, so for me, when we're dealing with young dogs, my default usually is to make them a little crazy in the beginning because I I feel confident in myself in terms of being able to reel them in later um, and, uh, you know, and, and get the control eventually that I, that I want to get. And I don't, right. I don't want to, you know, like my friend Brad Gillespie, uh, who's a, a really great police dog trainer up in Canada, he always says, you know, for a police dog, you want this bias to action, right? And you don't want to take too much out of the dog to where he's too polite or he thinks he needs permission to do everything. You want a dog that's going to be, for a police dog, you want one that's going to be, to a certain extent, uh, a bit impulsive and just one that wants to act rather than wait for permission. And I, I truly feel like that's a that's a, like probably one of the best descriptions of you know, if you look at a dog and you say, what's going to make a great police dog, you want that dog that, you know, is not going to really be hunting for your permission for things. And, you know, his default is going to be to just go smash something. <laughs> well, and, I mean, it's a, it's a beautiful way of putting, it. I think like de default aggression. I think of that a lot when mm -hmm. I'm training dogs. I, I, I don't mind, uh, having that proverbial tether be slightly tighter to the, 
you know, in my case, the field or the game, mm-hmm. you know, than it is to me necessarily. And right, there's, right. there's times. Yeah. And I, I, yeah, I like that. It's very succinct and, and, a, a very, I, I like to a certain extent, I feel like I admire that in a dog where, sure. where the dog is willing to be like, you know, for, for lack of a better word, fuck you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> I'm going to, I'm about my own shit right now. And sure. you're like, all right, guy, like, you know, you go ahead and take it. It's kind of like your bird situation, you know, it's well, and yeah. And it gives us, you know, and, and it, 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 it leads us down the road into, into the drive manipulation talk. But at the same time, like, you know, there are dogs, you know, I would say for me, you know, one thing, number one, we're not dealing with the complexity of drive channeling in my business. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't need to worry about aggression. Right. And so that kind of takes something off the table in regards to like the, the issues you, I think you'll face potentially in making your monster when, you mm-hmm. know, when you're dealing in thresholds for aggression um, and, and channeling on a, you know, and, and kind of how that hair trigger is and that dog tagging you, when they're in a super high state of prey, but at the same time kind of dealing with maybe some sensitivities to the environment that we want, mm-hmm. you know, or that you want in that moment, you know, you know, for us, it's like, there's a sole focus and it's, and it's all prey. And maybe you can think of dominating a bird or chasing down a bird and, and killing it and ingesting it as some sort of, you know, maybe there's some aggression in there, but I think mostly that's, I mean, you couldn't get cleaner definition of prey, than the relationship between a bird dog and a bird. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, you know, for that reason, you know, I, I do, I lean heavily towards the drive development kind of portion of what I do. And, and, and many of the young dogs I work with are environmentally sensitive in ways that I never saw in my time in, in right. working dogs. Um, and so they come out, they're socially sensitive, they're worrisome, they're spooky. There would be dogs I would be worrying about being kind of low threshold dogs in, in other areas. But now it's my job to kind of nourish and, and nurture that, uh, that prey drive and make them feel confident on the field to the extent sure. that, you know, I got to, I got to reel them in later and I'm happy to do that. Yeah, so, ab- absolutely. I, I think, um, you know, I, I think there are definitely a lot of parallels there for sure. Sure. And so, so with that, let's so you, you, t- you spoke about capping and I really love kind of your, your definition and that's one thing. So it, it's come up in conversation over and over and it's actually, there's, there's beginning to become some cross pollination. And so for, for context, I'll let you know, like the, the hunting dog world is, uh, you know, they're very rich in tradition, mm-hmm. but they're not like really rich in progress. Mm-hmm. If, <laughs> if that makes sense. So we're all, yeah. you know, there, there are many things. And Ben and I just did a podcast where we reviewed Conrad Moe's book. And we mm-hmm. talk about how relevant that is to the modern era. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but I think it's, it, you know, the, the funny part of that is like, you guys go, oh man, like, isn't it funny how relevant that is? And and kind of maybe the gun dog world is going, well, we've never had to adjust, so why would we? Right. You know, and um, and so I, I think there's an important way of thinking about dog training that could, yeah, I would love to see things happen in the gun dog world, specifically in the com- competition side, that it, it, things that we have gone a, a bridge too far in the protection sports, and I'm thinking of IGP when I say that, 
Um, we could use a dose of that in the gun dog. Yeah. I would love to see a retriever trial where people gave a shit if a dog walked to the line looking happy. Right. You know, <laughs> and so, um, you know, and so that's where I, I'm, I'm that's capping in my opinion. And, and it's everything it's, it's, it's happening by default in, in say a retriever trial and people don't recognize it and therefore they don't have the opportunity to use it to their advantage with intent. Hmm. Um, and, uh, and so, you know, specific problems where I think capping is an issue to let's start with retrievers would be breaking, uh, and vocalization. Those are like the two I see all the mm -hmm. time mm -hmm. where there's an expression of drive and people have struggled to manage that. Yeah. And so the answer to breaking, uh, has all, or, or, vocalization has traditionally been what, what they would call denials. So the bird falls and well, you just don't get it. I may heal you away. Mm -hmm. And, and one thing, you know, when I think of that article that I've cited and read so many times, the, uh, the restraining canine drives, mm -hmm. uh, is the break in sequence. And if you wouldn't mind just touching on like sequence breaking just a bit and like Pat, so much of everything we do is patterned. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, <clears throat> you know, like, uh, I think one of the easiest ways to think about it is in the context of retrieving, you know, like in, uh, in sport. So, um, when you, you know, are, uh, you know, teaching a retrieve, obviously dogs in heel position in a protection sport in a basic position, you throw the retrieve item out in front of them. Um, the anticipation of that, um, rewarding self-rewarding behavior of getting to fly out, pick it up, come back. Um, and then, you know, eventually, you know, receive an even higher value retrieve item like a ball for, for, for doing the task. Um, we start to pattern a sequence where as you start to come into the basic position, the dog starts to, you know, see, okay, this is, you know, you pick up the dumbbell from the dumbbell tree or you, you're, you pick up the retrieve item, you know, in PSA that you're going to throw. Now the dog starts loading a bit, you throw it and then, you know, it, it, you know, you let it drop. And after, you know, a few seconds, you give the command and the dog goes out and does a retrieve. Well, what ends up happening obviously is classical conditioning. The dog starts to realize that one thing follows the next, and then we get some, you know, we get some breaking. So, you know, basically what we're doing there is in order to, to deal with that, if I were to just to throw the object and the dog just flies out of heel position before the uh, object comes to rest or right after it comes to rest, you know, anticipating the command that's about to come because we've done it so many times, the dog knows what the sequence is. You know, basically what we want to do is come in, throw it, and then enforce a little capping there where, you know, I might have the dog stay in the sit. I step out, I step back in, I step out, I step back in. Maybe I heal around, reset, point him at the object, send him to go uh, pick it up. So that he starts to learn that these things don't happen in this uninterrupted sequence. And so I, I interrupt that sequence and show him that hey, there's going to be other stuff that we're going to do before the retrieve happens. So I can take that um, feeling of imminence of having to go out and get it right now because that's what's happening next because the dog doesn't know what's going to be next in the sequence. Um and so that sequence, uh, sequencing of a trial exercise, you know, we very rarely practice exercises in PSA, 
you know, as a full trial exercise because of that. A lot of things are set up in PSA to do exactly that, which is for the dog, if you train them as the trial exercises all the time, the dog is going to anticipate the next move. And then you're going to have the dog breaking and that's where we get to take points off. And so your training has to combat that at all times. It has to compartmentalize. And then you have to interrupt the sequences in ways where the dog will understand that, you know, for example, in a, a level two uh, jump sequence where you have to uh, make a, a turn, put a dog in a motion exercise, you, you know, you uh, put them on a line where there's a jump and a tunnel, and then you turn and face them at the end. Um, for my dogs, I very rarely teach that recall sequence over the jump to the tunnel to heel position because I know it's going to result in some anticipation. So it may be I do that, and more often than not, I'm just putting him in that uh, motion exercise. I set up, I go back, I reward him in place, I do something else. Um, you know, maybe I, you know, do a few repetitions of just putting him into a down before the recall sequence and go back and reward him for the down. I don't always let him do the recall sequence. And then at times, uh, you know, for, uh, for, uh, same thing for, um, you know, for all of the, uh, exercises where that there's a clear sequence in the trial, you want to just break those things up, compartmentalize them and not allow the dog to experience those recalls right after the motion exercise. Otherwise, you get the breaking. And, you know, and that comes from, it's the anticipation, right? The, you know, we all see that in anticipation in the early stages of learning as a good thing where the dogs are, okay, I'm, I'm getting what you're putting down. I, I know what you want me to do and I'm ready to do it right away. But it's that anticipation of either the self-rewarding nature of jumping and tunneling that, you know, these dogs love to do running is self-rewarding behavior. So, you know, they're breaking out of these stationary, um, you know, uh, um, uh, exercises to do that thing that is, you know, sort of in a premax sense, extremely rewarding to them. And then on top of that, they get layered with actually a reward when they do it correctly. So there's that anticipation coming too of, Hey, I'll get a ball at the end, a tug at the end. It's on a variable reward scheme. So, you know, you're really pushing that, you know, when you have that dog in a stay, you're really pushing that uh, anticipation of the reward and really making that dog have to understand you got to hold this rock solid stay. Otherwise, the reward's not going to, you're not going to get it. And what worries me sometimes about like negative punishment as uh, a way to, um, you know, like you have that dog that's on the line and he breaks and, you know, you're like, okay, now you're not, you don't get to get the bird. For me, I always ask, does, is, what's the dog emotionally experiencing there? Is he experiencing the operant um, negative punishment or is he experiencing the frustration of not getting his bird? So the next time he comes to the line, he's even more frustrated. You uh, nailed even, exactly what I was thinking of. Right. And even more anticipating. Uh, and so uh, sometimes when people only have that operant conditioning lens on when they're training, I think they forget that sometimes the dog doesn't really understand what denied him in that case. Um, you know, breaking to him was just, you know, just an impulsive action he wasn't really thinking about holding that stay from the beginning. So, you know, like making that stuff more relevant, not allowing the dog to make the mistake sometimes for me and capping is a really more important thing. Like we do it a lot where 
we get dogs that are vocally leaking in a guard. So they bite, we drive, they out. And then, you know, the dog starts, you see him in the guard, he starts to load a little bit. And then, and we're trying to keep him silent in the guard. And yes, we have to put a little sometimes pressure on the dog in the guard uh, with, uh, you know, with the uh, training collar, maybe with the e-collar a little bit. But I tend to use a little bit more, um, you know, just sort of like negative reinforcement that, you know, the, the, the pressure will come off as soon as the leaking stops. And then I want to really layer that reward on. And so I use that, I use the, the pressure technique to kind of keep the dog from getting vocal, but then I really want to use my reward scheme to reward him for holding it in a little bit longer and a little bit longer. And I'm kind of using very variable reward there. And over time, I can get a dog that was leaking pretty bad in the guard to be super quiet for a long duration. And it's mostly managing the reward so that the dog is understanding that quiet is drawing that reward. And as soon as I start leaking, pressure comes on. As soon as I stop leaking, pressure comes off, reward is imminent. Um, and so a lot of, you know, a lot of managing the dog in, uh, you know, in drive capping is, uh, is understanding the reward scheme more or less. And, and, you know, and kind of like what we see in the police dog world sometimes is you get a dog that's super vocal in the building search and to them, you know, to the handler, maybe he's thinking, I got to get him to be quiet. So they're, you know, they just start correcting him. Right. And the dog doesn't understand what the correction is for, because maybe the dog is not hearing himself leak because it's a normal state of being for him. Right. You get loading and all sorts of loading. Things, right? He's got, you know, like sometimes they get like, you know, like you've done a ton of detection dogs in your day. Right. So, you know, you're teaching a, a trained final response and you get those dogs with the happy feet. Right. Yep. They're yep. like, they're like, very pertinent. I'm sitting, right. I'm sitting, but <laughs> like something on me has to keep going and my tail's not enough. So the feet are that's like, it. you know, feet are bouncing a little bit. And that's a really hard behavior to get at because, you know, you, you want to, the first instinct is, all right, I'm going to correct him and put some pressure on him. And then, okay, well, the pressure's in odor. So now he, I make him a little bit nervous about being in odor. And it's like, you know, maybe for that dog, we let him have the happy feet for a little while until, the obedience to odor becomes so powerful that I can get on them a little bit and, and get them a little quieter. Um, and so, yeah, a lot to me, a lot of capping is, you know, kind of picking your battles on those things and yeah. asking, always asking yourself, does the dog understand what the suppression is aimed at? What, what behavior or, or um, you know, or sort of emotional aspect of what the dog is doing is, uh, is it aimed at? Um, because well, a lot of times it's hard for them to understand what we're actually trying to pick at as far as what, what we say that I don't want you to do. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, um, you know, so I'm, I'm listening to you speak and you're describing things that we all deal with in our gun dogs, right? So we have braking, we have whatever the expression of drive may be that's not braking. That's the leaking. Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes it's vocalization. Sometimes it's the happy feet. Sometimes it's creeping from the line mm -hmm. and it's how, how do we manage that in that moment? And, you know, and one thing you said that I think, I, I rarely see is breaking down the exercise. So if I have a dog that's breaking, I can, I can focus on that issue without trying to step up to a full setup every time. Right. You know, and, th and I see that very often. It's like, I can only go train if I'm going to see three marks in a blind mm -hmm. with my retriever. I can only go train if I'm going to put my dog, my bird dog on point 
and then go through the sequence of flushing, shooting to the fall and, and releasing to the retrieve. And, and what I'm getting is like this whole time I'm loading this dog, you know, and, and mm-hmm. I'm, and I'm creating the problem I'm trying to, right. to, to, to deal with in the moment. And so often for me, that's if I've got a bird dog that's struggling with breaking or struggling with, uh, you know, post flush, if it's, you know, if it's a pointing dog, the bird's been flushed and now they get the happy feet because they're anticipating the treat retrieve. Yeah. Well, oftentimes that's a great time to step out, not put the dog in the odor of the bird, but maybe put the dog in position somewhere. He's not smelling the bird and somebody from distance throws a bird and shoots it. And that's a time to deal with that, that specific behavior when he's not in total drive, when I step to the line, you know, and the same thing for my retrievers, you know, it's, we always pattern leaving a holding blind, stepping to the line. They they're expecting to watch birds fall out of the sky and they're, you know, they're creeping, you know, 10, 15 feet ahead of the line. And I'm hammering them for that when I could have just, you know, put that in a completely different context and dealt with that specific, you know, expression of drive, in a different context and then brought it back together. And, and, you know, I, I think that's something we could see more of in our, in mm-hmm. our world and well, we I, can cap in the moment. Yeah. I think, I think too, like a lot of times I think I feel like, especially when you're dealing with breaking issues and, 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 and that kind of stuff and, and capping and, and whatever, I think there's an over-reliance on e-collars. Yes. You know, which, you know, which have the, you know, have the power to deliver some stimulation to the dog. Um, but oftentimes don't do enough to be able to show the dog like, you know, like we, we run into that too, where, you know, dog might start, you put him in a down, you know, in front of a jump sequence, he's anticipating all the great things that are going to happen, running, jumping, receiving a reward, and he starts creeping. And, you know, a simple fix for that is actually getting the dog really used to double handling and, you know, and having somebody handle behind him on, you know, on a training collar and don't let him break, don't let him uh, creep. Right. Sure. Um, and you can obviously in those contexts start to layer in a little, um, you know, east him and pair it with the, um, you know, pair it with the line corrections. But at the end of the day, you know, just sometimes old fashioned physical restraint and physical management supersedes what you can do with the e-collar. Well, for sure. And, and we've all seen that dog and, you know, and, and we're thinking, you know, when I listen to you talk, I'm, I'm seeing that dog on a long bite that somebody's trying to teach, you know, a stopped attack with an e-collar only, mm-hmm. you know, and, and hopefully they've at least titered that dog to the highest level of pressure before they start that process, <laughs> you know, but, but at the same time, it's like that dog learns to run through a hundred mm-hmm. and, and now that tool is is pretty much been rendered useless for that specific right. context. Well, and you, then, know, and, you know, and then you have like my, you know, my friend Pat Stewart in Australia says it's like the ultimate uh, negative reinforcement experience where, yes. you know, the dog is yep. flying down there and then you, you know, you give the command you put the pressure on and the dog just, you know, is screaming, running through the high level of the e-collar. And then once he bites, 99% of the time, what happens, the handler's like, oh, shit. And then he takes the pressure off, and the dog's like, oh, the goal of this exercise is to run through the worst kind of pressure I'm ever going to feel, right, and finally get down to there to bite. And he thinks he, thinks he ends up thinking he's doing the right thing. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, and, th- and this is interestingly a problem that I have to deal with a lot because I deal with questing dogs a lot. And so I'm dealing with dogs that that by their nature need to be uh, they need to be independent of me, 
and and they're going to have to perform their job um in even in training scenarios off lead at great distance mm-hmm. and and so one thing i find very useful is to habituate the dog in higher in in uh gradually h- higher states of arousal mm-hmm. You know, and, and so the, the e-collar is a phenomenal tool. It's like nothing that's ever existed for bird dogs before, but they have to learn that they have, that they can offer a reflexive response in, in, in higher and higher states of arousal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to trust that, but, but the key is like, I must, you know, one great thing about birds is like, if I control it, if I, if I play my cards right environmentally, that dog can never catch that bird, mm-hmm. which you know, for a decoy, you know, that, that guy's only so fast, um, you know, and, and so I can, I can show this dog, Hey, it's a moot point to chase because you're never going to catch. You're in higher and higher states of arousal. And hopefully I can get you to the point where you do see that bird fall in, in front of your face. And hopefully if I've done my job correctly, I can offer an e collar stem that is not just overwhelmingly powerful, but has a reflexive response in a heightened state of drive, mm-hmm. you know, and, but I, I also have to lean early on my, on what we call a check cord, just a long line yep. in that restraint process. But, um, but yeah, I agree a hundred percent, you know, if, if we, if we over rely on the e-collar in trying and in, in the moment, especially, you know, and, mm-hmm. and I think there's a time where you got to learn like, Hey man, I got to let this one go before you even start, right. you know, <laughs> um, because at that point now you are you're just creating a resilience that you're not going to be able to overcome later, right? And, and creating a negative, a perfect negative reinforcement scenario, right. and hopefully that makes sense to the crowd. Um, you know, so so we got through capping. I think I'm, I'm comfortable with that. I, I do want to touch a, a little bit on neutrality because sure. we talked about vocalization, and I'm sorry, I know we're running a bit long and I don't want to keep mm-hmm. you on all night, but this is, it's, it's very good co- content. And if you ever, if you need to jump off, please let me know. And, and we'll just make it a two-parter, um, neutrality, you know, for me, my, my head immediately goes to vocalization, mm-hmm. a, a dog that's bleeding fr- and loading from the moment I park the truck, mm-hmm. right? It's that dog that knows we're heading to the training field and all of a sudden we've begun the sequence. And, and they're, they're loading and they start leaking and we've got this crazy vocalization in my head. That's where it's like, okay, I need to practice some neutrality to the entire situation. Right. Um, and, and maybe if you wouldn't mind touching on neutrality and, and if you think about that kind of scenario, like, Hey, I'm showing up to the training field with my lab that knows what he's getting ready to see. Yeah. In my head, I'm thinking, okay, this is a great time to show up to the training field and not do marks. Exactly, it's a good time for obedience. Yeah, yeah, uh, and you know, I think for for us in in protection sports, what we're thinking about a lot is, um, you know, we we say you kind of with your young dogs that we've been kind of making monsters. Once the the obedience starts, kind of in earnest, or you know, to really in a, in a formal sense you're going to have to earn your way back on the field in obedience. Um, you know, because what's going to end up happening is that dog comes out and he's like, he's always going to think the best thing is getting ready to happen. All right. So, um, he's going to come out and he's going to, you know, have feelings about coming on that particular field or that particular area. Um, and, uh, and so that's where you're going to get some of that, uh, that drive, um, 
leaking and you know the dog he doesn't want to pay attention he wants to be hourly focused and so forth and so for us it's kind of like all right well let's find a place near where we're going we need to get where we can get the behavior that we want so it's very much a you know sort of systematic desensitization you know exercise um in classical conditioning where it's like okay i i can find some distance from where i got to get, get to you know whether it's uh you know your for your for your dogs your your training area that they know um for our dogs it's our our training field at club and you know and start to get traction on the behavior um before we get to the place where everything is just going to all fall apart and you know and 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 so they earn their way back on the field so we got a lot of young dogs that are you know working obedience in the parking lot and then you know over time they just work a little closer and a little closer and a little closer to get into the field they're getting the behaviors that they want and what you're doing is you're basically building up a lot of reward history over these obedience exercises kind of peripheral you know in the periphery of the things that are, are going to completely uh, pull their attention away from you but on the periphery enough where you can still get the focus and the healing uh the quickness in your downs and so forth and a dog is paying attention to you um you know with uh with with a, with a lot of good uh spirit and it's some for some dogs it takes a while right i think i think people underestimate with certain dogs that are more hourly focused and you know and kind of a little higher um uh, arousal dogs where you know, it's, it's a bit of a fight to get on the field. And so, you know, having patience with that process, at least for us in protection sports is uh, super important. And, um, you know, and uh, as these people start to uh, do this, and, and I think the worst part about it is just how completely some dogs can fall apart when you get like right near the field. And then to the handler, it just seems like it'll like it'll take forever to get any better, right? Um, and then I always try and I always try and you know make a point with with the handlers at club, you know, like after two months go by, this dog that we couldn't come on the field with and get any kind of even you know momentary attention out of is now healing onto the field, taking rewards in the presence of decoys and so forth. And yes, it w- it took a little time. But now we've been able to create that neutrality to where the dog comes on. And he's not leaking all the time. He's not, you know, because he realizes like, look, when I come on for my obedience rounds, I understand I'm not going to get to bite. And um, even though I want to think I am, I'm not going to get it. And they learn to be satisfied with some lower value release, um, you know, from their, from their obedience. Um, and I, you know, and I think, I think you just have to, you just have to out, you just have to wait them out to a certain extent with that and be patient with that. Um, because what ends up happening, Grayson, I think for a lot of people is they they don't have the patience to really manage the neutrality with their reward scheme and distance and, and really take the desensitization process seriously. And then what ends up happening is they go too hard on the compulsion and then they, and then everything starts to crumble. Right. They, they, you know, the, yeah. It's, I mean, I would say, I, that is, it's such a common scenario in our world. And there's so many dogs that are, you know, beyond in, in, and I, and I don't mean to pick on gun dog trainers and, and I, and I'm sure there are some progressive folks out there 
we're not the first ones here in this conversation. Um, you know, but it's, it's so common to have a dog that vocalizes and well, he'll never overcome that. So either just work it with that being a part of his life or, or crush him to the Mm -hmm. point where you, you know, you no longer have a viable gun dog because you've suppressed drive to the point of no return. So yeah, it's, and that is, so I, I, you know, I'm glad to hear you say that. And I think too, like, I wish people, you know, I think it would be a great opportunity for folks that are dealing with issues like this that may be listening that have a dog that vocalizes and they think they're not ever going to, you know, they're never going to overcome that issue to go to a sport club night mm-hmm. and to watch because if they think their short hair is is over the top and drive, which and many are. I wish they could go see some of the mouths mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> normal club light club night for you, you right. know? And, um, and so, uh, and so that's neutrality. I mean, I, you know, and, and for us, it's contextual in a way that it can be, you know, it's probably less specific because for you guys, you're dealing with a decoy on the field. And I think that's your, you know, that's the, the ultimate neutrality for right. most dogs in your, in your specific corner of the world. Um, and then I do want to, Quickly, because uh, I want to kind of advance the conversation to get you at least get some sleep tonight. Um, <laughs> talk about suppression yeah. and if it's if it is ever appropriate. And when I think of suppression, I think of the unintended consequences, and right. that's blinking birds for us. That means hey, you smell a bird and you go, I don't like this, and I quit because every time right. I've done this, uh, it's it sucks and I don't want to do it anymore. And so now I'm no longer in drive. But is there a time where maybe suppression? is helpful. Yeah. I, I feel like sometimes, um, you know, sometimes you may have to achieve a little bit of suppression in a dog that's, you know, you believe has a good amount of resilience in order to sort of get the point across of, you know, this, uh, you know, this behavior is not acceptable. Um, I, I think to a certain extent, you know, the younger the dog you're dealing with, the more I think the way you, you just described, which is I don't want the crossover classical conditioning effect of me trying to maybe suppress a little uh, creeping or, or leaking or whatever um, and get the dog to the point where he says, I don't want to do this anymore. And, and, and I think sometimes that comes when the trainer gets a little emotional about it and, and, uh, and maybe is going for some suppression, but maybe it goes a little too far with the suppression. And I think we have to be aware of that because um, you you can, you know, obviously, you know, in your in your world, you, you can't it can happen as it does in the protection world um, where, you know, people get too hard on their dogs too fast. And and I see it in police dogs, too, where they're they're not managing the capping as well through, um, you know, through rewards. They're they're trying to literally suppress the dog in the down before the building surge and then. Again, you know, the, the dog doesn't really understand what the pressure is for. You know, maybe the dog is in the down, but he's he's leaking and creeping. And then you're just re, you know, sort of reiterating that down correction and getting harder and harder with it. And, you know, the dog may feel like I am down. And, and they've got to draw their own conclusion yeah, as to what that's all about. Exactly. Right. And so it's, uh, you know, and, and with leaking, that's kind of like continuous. It's really hard to attach a marker to it where you can like call it out from everything else, 
you know, like a punishment marker to try and make it more, more clear. And I think sometimes the dogs just sort of have to um, experience a little bit of suppression in that situation where it's like, okay, that was, you know, maybe it, it makes the dog change his mind about what he's doing in the moment, right? Cuts the anticipation off almost completely. And, and the and the dog's like, well, what, what just happened? Why did that happen? Right. And then you have to be ready to present the reward once the, the leaking behavior stops so that the dog can kind of get into the rhythm of, all right, well, I stopped all that noise and now suddenly my reward appears. Because yeah, I think a lot of it is just getting the getting the point across to the dog in a way they can understand. And sometimes you do have to, to suppress a little bit. Um, but I, you know, for me at least, sometimes I, I kind of like will successively approximate to complete quiet. You know, if I get the dog, you know, if, if I get the dog and I'm trying to like manage a little bit of leaking or something like that, <clears throat> I may, you know, put him on a bark box where he's not on the ground, make it a little easier for us to, you know, work, let's say, you know, a dominant dog collar or a prong collar with some E and, and use some negative reinforcement. And sometimes I, all, literally all I want to do is, um, you know, get that, you know, get that dog to just shut up for a second. Right. Yeah. Um, but if he won't completely be quiet, but he's, you know, he, you can tell he's trying to kind of hold it in. He's just having trouble. Then sometimes I'll, I'll allow the dog to blow off some of that steam and maybe just give him an alert, you know, to where he can start barking and let him do that for a little bit and cap him again and, you know, continuously work on that a little bit. So to me, it's like a little bit of an art to work both the rewarding and the pressure simultaneously to get the desired result. And you, I mean, you, you did, you hit two, two things that, that, that I think of often, and I haven't really had the opportunity to, to put these to practice completely, except well, number one, I, I have, that's, you know, the resilience and, and having a resilient dog and having the opportunity to maybe be more suppressive with a resilient dog. And that goes back to us making our monsters, you know, and, and that's what, to me, that is about. It's about right. developing a dog that's resilient enough to take their training over time. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, when you talk about allowing the dog into a barking sequence, you know, I think, you know, theoretically for me, from this perspective, putting it on cue mm -hmm. could be very beneficial to teaching it to you know teaching a dog when not to bark right you know so so thank you i mean we i think unless you have anything to expand on the suppression part i think with that no I, like i think you have to i guess the hard part for me is um you know when people say they're like working on you know capping the dog in the building search or whatever um and you know and then you see the dog really showing the, the 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 effects of the suppression to where they're afraid to leave the down they're they don't search with the intensity that you want them to uh, you know and and so you get kind of get the opposite effect you know of instead of having that dog that's going to explode back into drive the dog now is is uh is biased to attention he's worried about mm -hmm. what you're going to do He's worried about what his behaviors are going to be, becomes tentative and things like that. And I think that I'd rather have a loud dog than a tentative one in the building search, to be honest with you. Um, yeah, that's, you know, default aggression. Yeah, exactly. Because, you know, I, I worry when when people put too much pressure on dogs in those situations and then they kind of take away the dog's uh, powerful state of mind 
and um, you know, and, and that can that can, you know, obviously both things are 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 problematic, but you know, a loud dog is, is problematic in some ways, but at the same time, a tentative dog is even worse to me. And I think sometimes when people start using these tools, they don't they don't realize that they if they use the tool improperly or an approach improperly the result that they get on the other end is worse than the problem that they started with. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, I have, yeah, that's, and I think that's the big, you know, that's the big fear and that's the art, right? right. That's where the, the, the ability to balance and, and feel your way. I mean, we, we talk about this all the time and I love, I love that you, um, you know, you always, at least in some of your former podcasts and other things I've heard you talk about you, when you talk theory, you know, it's your ticket to the dance as a dog trainer. But but when you talk about application, um, these are these are these things at a high level when you're dealing with dogs that are either extremely expressive or extremely trepidatious. Mm -hmm. And what do you do in that moment? Right. You know, and you can't theorize your way through that. You have to you have to act and react, um, you know, and, and it's it's so important to to put that to practice and to go out every day and train. And I, I had a bullet point in here that I'm going to, I want, I want to skip and maybe I can talk into another one of these in a year or two. Um, but it's, it's pre-Mac as a framework of training. And mm -hmm. one of my favorite episodes of yours is lure and reward as a frame or frameworks of training. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and it, it always makes me think of like, I've thought of like compulsion as a framework of training, mm -hmm. but, but for us as gun dog trainers, and I do, I just want to touch on it, you know, or us as, as gun dog handlers, whether any, whether we're going to a trial, a hunt test, or, or just going on a day of hunting, our reinforcer exists in, a, in the field already. Mm -hmm. And we have, for, for all intents and purposes, zero control over it. Um, and, and what we have is compulsion. And so it makes us feel as if we're existing in a framework that is completely compulsive, but it's not. Mm -hmm. And everything is a release to the next behavior in anticipation of that moment where drive is expressed in its in its you know fullest state. Mm -hmm. um, and and so, I, again, I don't want to spend all day on it, um, but I feel like that's it. Like pre Mac is is a wonderful way of thinking your way through a gun dog scenario because we we don't get to control our field. We don't get to control, you know, our decoys aren't working with us. Mm -hmm. They're, they're trying to survive. Um, you know, and so I won't even ask for your opinion on that, but I did want to touch on it because it's, it's sure. something I do want people to think of out there. But, but one thing you did say, and I think in your most recent podcast, at least I listened to, which was, I think a maybe a scent work or it might've been your one, um, on uh uh gosh what and now i'm failing to say but like you're you're uh whatever your last podcast was man um you talked about always being prepared to to manage your dog yeah on the training field and i think that this is a place that many of us fall down and and when we're talking about managing drives if you step out there to test your dog if, if you are walking out on a mock test essentially without your equipment ready and, and unprepared to turn it into a training scenario, you're hurting yourself. Oh, for sure. And, and I see that all the time. And I think it goes hand in hand with all the things we've discussed tonight, you know, managing these drives, um, not outing, 
you know, breaking, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if you don't show up with your prong collar, your e-collar, your leashes, your helpers and all those things, right. you know, and, and, and so, um, I, I would, you know, I don't, I know you're probably not prepared to give all your episodes, but I, I what I would do is encourage everyone that's listening to this to go check out the controlled aggression podcast. Um, because I get so much of what I talk about on this podcast from there on a, on a day-to-day basis. And it's so, so relevant to what we do. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. I think for, you know, I think one of the battles that I was fighting a lot early on in the police dog world was when handlers were getting ready for certification, for example, and thinking, well, my certification is going to be an off leash test. So I should go out and practice off leash. And, you know, the idea, you know, the idea that you're going to get proficient in off leash control when the dog is able to, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, not follow your, your, your commands and you can't do anything about it, uh, is, is kind of ludicrous, but you know, it, you know, that used to be a prevailing thought where, you know, um, people would go out there and they would practice for the off leash test by just having their dog off leash a bunch. And then they wondered why the dog completely unraveled. And, you know, I, I always think about dog training in terms of, especially when you're managing drives and expression and excitability and, and all that stuff, you know, these dogs are going to be tight and loose, you know, like you can, you know, you can train real hard and be very specific and hold a super high standard for everything you do and you tighten them up. And then you, you know, go out and for police dogs, you go out and go on a deployment and the dog gets a little loose. You go out on a deployment again, the dog gets a little looser, you know, so you go back to training, you know, in service and you tighten them back up. And if you have that method, you know, sort of uh, thought process going, then you'll be pretty successful. And I, f- I feel like the same is true, you know, with our sport dogs where, you know, when I go to a trial, I'm, I'm taking this young dog to a trial in uh, in a couple of, uh, and well, actually next week, not this weekend, but next weekend. And, uh, you know, he's probably going to get out there and all his equipment is going to come off. And, you know, it may be the case that if I've done my job really well at conditioning his behaviors, I will keep him from getting too loose uh, and doing something stupid. Um and that's kind of what I'm hoping for. But I, I also know that as soon as I get done with that, he's going to have an experience where, you know, maybe he gets away with a couple of things that he normally wouldn't get away with. And he kind of he kind of learns that, that, hey, something was different about this situation. And then, you know, then I have to go back to being a little more exacting, tighten him back up again, right? Let him forget about that um, trial opportunity. And, you know, the next one may come months down the road. Um, but he's going to be tightened up in between. And so I, f- I feel like, um, you know, making sure you understand the standard of behavior that you're holding. So you keep things tight. You don't allow the dog to just blow you off in training when you have the ability to enforce things, you know, that's, that's kind of what we're talking about. And if you, uh, if you pay attention to those details and, uh, and keep your dog, uh, you know, kind of reined in and, and kind of tight going into a trial, it's probably not going to look like your last training session, but what we hope is it doesn't unravel too much more than that. <laughs> yeah. And I think if, if over time you play your cards, right, you end up with that, you know, six, seven, eight year old dog. Right. That, that doesn't have those ups and downs. Exactly. You know, right. When, like that's the, and, the idea is you, you end up and that's my favorite age, right. Is like yeah. six, seven, eight year old dog. 
Uh, when I won nationals with Raptor, he was nine. Right? He just yeah. turned nine. And, uh, you know, and that like the reflexivity of their behaviors at that point when they've been, you know, practiced to perfection, um, you know, the kind of like the, the, I, I think, you know, you have like sort of a, um, a baseline of what you, you want, you know, I think of a line, you know, going from left to right about here's where I want my dog's behavior to be. And you get some fluctuations around that line with every training session and maybe bigger fluctuations with, uh, you know, with trialing here and there. And then that thing just starts to naturally tighten down, tighten down, tighten down, you know, to where, um, you know, the, the feedback that dog requires uh, becomes a little bit uh, more variable and uh, and, you, and you've done a really good job at sort of building these reflexive behaviors in this dog where you don't have to correct them very much anymore when you go out uh, on the training field and uh, you're practicing a lot of you know variable reward and, and playing with that a lot into his older years and, and man that just that's just such a nice place to be it's um, beautiful and I've got I've got one there right now and it's like he's not looking for the cheeky out right anymore. You know, he's yeah. not looking for that shortcut. Right. He, he he appreciates the the process and the sequence, and right. he, and like you said, you get the opportunity now to throw to, to sprinkle in your variable rewards to the point where you can even get more powerful. Right. With without you know without losing things off to the side that the kind of leaking uh, of training maybe to some degree. So yeah, I mean, and and uh, you know shit, man, that's, that's where we're aiming. And I think of all the people, you know, in our world, it's so, it's so, you know, pop, or I guess, you know, faddish, I guess it currently to like, how fast can you get your dog to a finished level? Right. You know, and it's, it's not a finished level until you're there, you know, it's, it's still an age and experience game. And, sure. um, you know, so, so, you know, I, I think, God, man, I could go on and I, I enjoy this conversation so much. I've had so much fun and I look forward to, to many more in the future, whether they be recorded or not. Um, but I, you know, I think it's a good place to wrap up. Do you have any parting words for us? Uh, no, I don't think so. I feel like we covered a lot of stuff. It's always interesting to me. You know, this year I've been on um, the Houndsman podcast, <laughs> uh, Search and Rescue podcast. And, you know, it always comes back to, you know, dog training is dog training, you know, like yep. the, 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 the concepts, the ideas, um, the application, uh, is so, uh, familiar to all these areas. We, we may have different terminology and, and sort of, you know, uh, frameworks for how we think about these things, but a lot of it all comes down to the same stuff. And, um, it's always, it's always interesting to me, um, you know, when that happens, uh, to, to be able to talk to people in different disciplines. And I always enjoyed that when I was an academic, right. It's like some of the most fun stuff we ever did researching was to take ideas and concepts from other areas of inquiry, um, biology or, or things like that, the way they're maybe thinking about certain types of things and bring that to economics. And I feel like we do a lot of that in, uh, you know, in, in, in this type of training too, which is, you know, there's a lot of commonalities and there's a lot of things that we can all share and talk about. And, uh, and, and it just makes the, the whole process a lot more fun. So I appreciate you having me on. It was a pleasure and always enjoy uh, talking to you and uh, we'd be happy to come back on anytime.
Well, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll end it with this, man. I'm sitting in my office and I'm, I'm sitting under a, uh, a charcoal rendering of Lacey. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's very surreal for me to, to have you, you know, recorded for posterity's sake, uh, having spent, uh, God, more than half my life kind of in your orbit to some degree. And so I'm so grateful for, uh, the guidance you've given me, the availability, uh, and, uh, and you mean a lot to a lot of us out there. So, so thanks for being with me, Jerry. All right. Thank you so much, Chris. And it was a pleasure and uh, we'll talk soon. All right, buddy. Take care. Take care. Hey, listeners, Nick Larson here, host of the Bird Shop Podcast. As fans of this show, you may be interested in the conversations on the Bird Shop Podcast, where we discuss all things upland hunting, from upland birds and their habitat and conservation to the shotguns, bird dogs, and gear used to pursue them. Whether you're a seasoned upland hunter or just getting started and wanting to learn more, I interview a wide range of guests, each with their own unique perspective and valuable experience to share. If you're on the hunt for more upland hunting conversation, please consider subscribing to the Bird Shop Podcast today. Thank you.